0: Hey, some exciting news from our federal government last week as they announced that Uh, There are plans to go ahead with two new icebreakers for our Canadian Coast Guard. They made an announcement last Thursday. So the deployment of these two ships uh, is being called a game changer for the Coast Guard and the work that they do in patrolling the Arctic. So let's find out about it. We're going to chat with Timothy Choy now, who's a maritime strategy expert at the University of Calgary, Centre for Military, Security and Strategic Studies. Uh, Timothy, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on, Shay. So when we talk about two brand new heavy icebreakers, give us an idea of what a heavy icebreaker is. What kind of a ship are we talking about here?
1: So they're going to be around roughly 150 meters long, so fairly large, and um, they'll be the largest ships that are currently in the Canadian uh, Coast Guard fleet, or rather will be in the Canadian Coast Guard fleet. And the thing about a polar icebreaker is that they're going to be capable of operating in the polar seas, um, especially Canadian Arctic ice-covered waters for nearly basically the entire um, year, which right now we don't really, because there isn't really much of a need for it. Um, But as the ice, you know, weakens, and there's more and more traffic that happens up in the north, um, there's gonna be a significant need for these services um, provided by these icebreakers. Um, And so that's actually one of the interesting things about this announcement, that they actually confirmed that they do envision these icebreakers to operate in the north for the entire year. Whereas currently, we really only do it for perhaps maybe nine to 10 months of the year. Um, and we leave the you know, deep winters, basically, we just leave it and un- uncovered.
0: Yeah, my understanding is we take the one icebreaker that we have and send it for maintenance during the really, you know, most winterest months, I guess. Uh, this, now we'll have overlap, so we'll basically have a presence in the Arctic year-round, correct? That's why they're considering this to be a game-changer?
1: Yeah, so actually that was, um, you know, it's really nice to hear the government actually say that explicitly, that they actually do, that one of the reasons that they want to have two icebreakers is to have that continuous annual, you know, 12 months of year 365 coverage. Um, Of course, even with two, there's still going to be moments in the, you know, throughout their lives, and they're going to be in service for well over 40 years, you know, if the current icebreaker is any indication. There's so many times um, within their service life where, they won't be able to do, um, you know, continuous coverage because there'll be some periods of maintenance that require much longer than the three months that they're currently scheduling for them. And, you know, every several years, um, you know, shifts have to go under a deep major overhaul that includes such things as, you know, it's taking out the entire engines and basically replacing them wholesale or making sure that, you know, all the different parts are replaced. And so, you know, if we actually want to have, you know, continuous coverage for their entire lifespan, what we could actually really use is actually three icebreakers. Um, and that would be a much more, uh, secure and much more certain, um, arrangement. Nonetheless, of course, you know, two is still better than one. Yeah. And up until now, um, the, for the last 10 years when we've been talking about having a polar icebreaker, it's, the assumption has always been really, the plan was always been to just build one. You know, oh, if we have the extra money, maybe we'll just go in a second one. That would be very nice. But, you know, that was never actually confirmed until today, or rather this last week. So,
0: yeah. What, you know, like you say, there's going to be increasing traffic up in the north. Um, That's the expectation anyway. But what kind of work are they doing? Like, what's what's our Coast Guard doing up in the Arctic in those nine or ten months they're up there now?
1: Yeah. So, um, when we talk about the Coast Guard icebreakers, icebreaking is really a means to several different ends. Um, but what sets icebreakers apart from other ice-strengthened ships, such as, you know, our Harry the Wolf um, Navy ice capable patrol ships or, you know, ice-strengthened commercial ships, is that these icebreakers, they're meant to actually break ice for other ships and, you know, be able to break that ice so that they carve a wide enough path for commercial shipping or even military shipping um, that can't get through the ice themselves. And breaking the ice also ensures that some of that shipping can resupply remote communities because, you know, uh, a lot of communities up in the remote north, they don't have easy access to uh, cheap supplies. And so, you know, every once a year, they'll have a large container cargo ship come in to drop up supplies, and they're supposed to last for that for an entire year. And if something happens, they're, you know, kind of SOL. Um, and, and so having a year-round Arctic presence really helps to give some flexibility um, if anything goes wrong. Um, and sometimes they also break hot the ice so that those communities can actually sail their much smaller vessels out to do some fishing or recreation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they can also, you know, deploy scientific instruments in ice-covered waters, right, which yeah. right now, you know, we're really limited to doing that only in the summers, um, and so being able to go up there the entire year, you can do that. And then finally, of course, then probably the major most important task is search and rescue. Um, and you have some times where you yeah, have smaller vessels who head out and they take shelter from perhaps poor weather or they get lost and they get stuck in a bay that freezes overnight and then you know they get stuck they can't get themselves back out and so an icebreaker helps to free them um as well they can you know sail into coastal areas maybe uh to help look for uh, lost hunters or community lander community members that are maybe like you know hiding on the land
0: you know, when we talk about our Coast Guard, uh, obviously this is a huge development. But I know that the federal government has talked before about basically rebuilding the entire fleet, right? I mean, are there mm-hmm. other areas of the Coast Guard that desperately need some upgrades like this?
1: Then, I mean, depending on who you ask, you can say that basically the entire Coast Guard needs this kind of upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, the thing is, like, the, all those plans are more or less underway, um, and of course, under National shipping Strategy, there's they've received the first of three uh, major vessels from that program, the offshore fishery science vessels. Those are just commissioned over the last three years. Um, they've built in Vancouver. Um, and of course, right now, Davy Shipyard, once they get approved to be the third shipyard in Canada to be part of this uh, national shipping strategy, they're also on deck to build six uh, so-called program icebreakers, which are more or less medium icebreakers, to replace our current seat of medium that you know, hang out in the summers in the Arctic and you know, do a lot of work in the Atlantic as well during the um, other times of the year. And on top of all this, they're also you know, um, scheduled to, SPAN is scheduled to build uh, 16 so-called multi-purpose vessels. And these are, you know, they'll have a light icebreaking capability for use in you know, the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence Rivers. Um, they're as well while conducting all those other Coast Guard duties like search and rescue or boy tending um base navigation maintenance and you know such things like mm-hmm. that.
0: And he, it's something interesting about this and you mentioned there briefly the fact that we're bringing in another shipyard. Um, some people saying, you know what, they're, they're spreading this out, one's being built in BC, the other one's being built in Eastern Canada, so the government is is trying to make sure they cover their bases that way, but that may actually hinder how long or how expensive these projects are?
1: Yeah, so there're different ways to think about that question. And it's certainly true that, you know, if both ships are built in the same shipyard, and you know they, the second ship can take advantage of lessons learned from the first one. And so, within that shipyard, um, you know that second ship should be cheaper to build than the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing about and Canadian procurement is that uh, the ma- vast majority of causes of the delays come from the period before the construction starts. It's all in. The, in you know, it's all about you know the pre-contracting work. All about the. Line work, all about the decisions at the political level as to who gets to build when, where, uh, for how much, and all of that stuff. And so, one of the obstacles, um, you know, that cause such delays is, of course, um, different companies that are trying to bid for the same project. Yeah. Sometimes not happy with the outcomes, and so they try to uh, use legal measures to try to delay or try to take back that contract. And that's a, you know, that's you know, that adds years to the whole process. And so, you know, what if if you know, giving these two ships one each, you know, the Oprah style, you get an icebreaker, you get an icebreaker, <laughs> you know, one in Vancouver, one in uh, Quebec. You know what? If that prevents those two shipyards from, you know, taking those legal measures to further delay the program, well, you know what? It's not the most efficient way of building ships, but it actually gets them built. Um, then maybe that's a price that Canadians are you know, going to have to pay Yeah. And um, to get that capability.
0: And when we talk about projects like this, Timothy, we're talking about... Well, long term, right? Like, we're not going to have these things sailing up there next winter. It takes a long time to get these things built and deployed.
1: Absolutely. Um, And so, right now, they're thinking, they're hoping to get them built before um, 2030. (laughs) So, that's a very long time from now. It's nearly a decade away. And this is despite the fact that the basic design for the ship is already completed. Um, And what they're really doing now is actually preparing that design production and yeah. so it's not just a matter of actually having a ship that you know has all the parts you have to also figure out well how do you actually put those parts together given the constraints or dynamics of the particular shipyard and the equipment that you have and the spaces that you have right because you know nobody wants to like build an ikea furniture and it turns out oh we have like five screws <laughs> um you know like great if this is a you know piece of urge for health not so great if you're an icebreaker operating by your own in the arctic so you know making sure you all those uh, nuts and bolts fitted um you know and that's that's a major part of the design work too
0: and technology is just it's, it's through the roof on these machines
1: right oh yeah for sure Um, uh, you know being able to sell up there all the navigation and yeah. all the fine stuff yeah yeah
0: very interesting sure. thanks mm-hmm. so much for that timothy i appreciate it no problem I hope you uh, enjoyed it thank absolutely did yeah very much so thanks very very much for the call um That's Timothy Choi, who is a maritime strategy expert at the University of Calgary's Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies.